This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please go to christendomrestored.com to read other articles. Covenantal Prosperity, Not Pietism, is a Bible's Answer to the Prosperity Gospel, Part 1, by Frank Brito, January 12, 2013. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. Psalm 37, 16-17 The prosperity gospel, as proclaimed by false prophets such as Kenneth Hagin, Benny Hinn, and Mike Murdoch, is one of the many heresies of the modern church. Over the last few decades, it may have been one of the most devastating heresies to churches in my own country, Brazil. R.J. Rushduni gave an accurate description of it in the first volume of A Systematic Theology. Last Saturday, while traveling to Los Angeles, I listened on my car radio to an evangelist broadcasting from the other end of the country. While claiming to preach the Word of God as a Bible-believing Christian, he preached a faith I could not recognize as scriptural, nor the God I hear speak in the Bible. The man assured his converted and unconverted listeners that God is always on your side. He also spoke of God as our Daddy in Heaven, rich in resources and eager and anxious to help us if we would only allow him to do so. I could not recognize in what he preached the sovereign God of Scripture, nor anything that resembled his commanding word, the Bible. The evangelist was a humanist who was using or trying to use God as the greatest possible resource available to man. Central to his thinking was man and man's needs. He lacked any systematic theology of God. Instead, there were traces in his brief message of a theology of man as true center and God of things. R.J. Rushduni, Systematic Theology, Volume 1 The Necessity of Systematic Theology The essence of the so-called prosperity gospel is simply the ethical standards that may have already grown accustomed to see in politics being applied in the church, the psychological manipulation of the masses with empty promises. The consequences have been clearer for all who want to see. In my own country, Christians have lost a great deal of credibility, Millions have felt disappointed and left the church. The preaching of the cross has been overshadowed by mammon worship. Giving an accurate response to the teachings of the prosperity gospel is a very important aspect of building up a Christian culture in places which the church's mission and reputation has been devastated by it. One contemporary preacher who has been highly engaged in fighting the prosperity gospel is Pastor John Piper. I sincerely believe that he's been used by God to teach Brazilians some important truths of the gospel, and to lead them away from some of these heresies. This, in itself, is praiseworthy. However, it must also be pointed out that in his attempt to respond to these heresies, John Piper makes big mistakes that are quite dangerous to the mission of the church and, therefore, need to be adequately responded to. In his attempt to respond to the prosperity gospel, John Piper has launched a full-scale attack against Christendom, the ideal of Christian civilization. In one of his books, Let the Nations Be Glad, he dedicated a chapter against the prosperity gospel preachers called Twelve Appeals to Prosperity Preachers. In one section of this chapter, he describes what he believes to be the differences between the Old and the New Testament. At this point, we should ask ourselves, what has that to do with the prosperity gospels? Why is it important to know these differences in order to respond to prosperity preachers? For them to be wrong, is it necessary for these changes between the Old and New Testaments to have occurred? In the beginning of this section, John Piper argues that the fundamental difference between the Old and New Testament is that, quote, until that time God had focused his redemptive work on Israel with occasional works among the nations. Now the focus has shifted from Israel to the nations, end quote. This is certainly true. Initially, the world was not divided into nations. The book of Genesis tells us the whole earth was one language and of one speech, Genesis 11, verse 1, and that they were sufficiently organized to go on a journey together to a plain in the land of Shinar, Genesis 11, verse 2. The divisions came as a curse from God, and the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. 
that they may not understand one another's speech. Genesis 11, verse 6 through 7. All nations that now exist originally came from the seed of Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Genesis 10. The judgment of God against the Tower of Babel was the beginning of an important change in the history of mankind. After Babel, God began working out his plan to make a nation out of Abraham, and, up to the coming of Christ, his focus was mostly on Israel, as John Piper correctly stated. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgment, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 147, verse 19 20. Abraham came from the seed of Shem, Genesis 11, verse 10 through 32, to whom he had already promised primacy over his brother. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. Genesis 9, verse 26 through 27. The words of our Lord and Savior in the Great Commission, Teach All Nations, should be understood as an annulment of his previous long-term blinding of the nations. God, who had rejected the whole world with some important exceptions, decided to bring them back once again through Jesus Christ. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 11 through 13. The problem, however, is that John Piper believes that this change in focus meant that there was also a change in the way God grants material blessings to his people. One of the main differences between these two eras is that in the Old Testament, God glorified himself largely by blessing Israel so that the nations could see and know that the Lord is God. The pattern in the Old Testament is a come-see religion. The New Testament does not present a come-see religion, but a go-tell religion. So if a prosperity preacher asked me about all the promises of wealth for faithful people in the Old Testament, my response is, read your New Testament carefully and see if you see the same emphasis. You won't find it. And the reason is that things have dramatically changed. Here John Piper makes it clear that the reason he needs to describe what the differences between the Old and New Testament in a chapter on the prosperity gospel is that he actually believes it can be defended on the basis of the Old Testament. If he didn't think it could, he would not have dedicated an entire section of his book to tell us why prosperity preachers can quote the Old Testament. John Piper makes it perfectly clear that he believes that if this change had not occurred, then the prosperity preachers would be right. This is an absolutely incredible concession. In one paragraph, he simply handed over 75% of the Bible to his theological opponents. As we shall see, this is actually part of John Piper's attack against Christendom. Doubtlessly, there are several important differences between the Old and the New Testament, but none of these changes have anything to do with the promises of prosperity that we find in the Old Testament. Far from annulling these promises, the New Testament simply confirms them even more. This does not give any kind of support to the prosperity preachers. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it was true in the Old Testament, but then it was abolished in the coming of Christ. The problem is that, from Genesis to Revelation, it never has been true. So if one of these preachers asks us about all the promises of wealth in the Old Testament, our response should not be, things have dramatically changed. Our response should be an explanation of what the Old Testament really says. The Bible does not teach the prosperity gospel, but it does teach a specific theology of prosperity. This makes theologians like John Piper uncomfortable since it exposes his open hostility to Old Testament law. But, whether the major opponents of the prosperity gospel like it or not, the Bible, in Old Testament, teaches the concept of covenantal prosperity. Deuteronomy 28 is an important text to understand what this means. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all commandments which I command thee this day, 
and that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. These blessings were, 1. They would have peace, security, and prosperity wherever they went. Verse 3. Number 2. Their families would be big and prosperous. Verses 4 and 11. 3. Their animals would be fertile and vigorous. Verse 4 and 11. 4. Their crops would be blessed. Verse 4 and 11. 5. They would have a strong military. Verse 7. 6. They would be successful in everything they attempted to do. Verse 8. 7. They would be respected internationally. Verse 10. 8. They would have a stable climate with no droughts. Verse 12. 9. They would have great economic power. Verse 12. Deuteronomy 28 teaches us that Israel would have to persevere in obedience to God's law in order to keep being blessed. Israel's blessings were conditioned to how much they were obedient to God. God promised peace, prosperity, and cultural development, providing that they remain faithful to Him. On the other hand, God threatened them with the exact opposite in case they became unfaithful. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and statutes, which I commanded thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. Deuteronomy 8, verses 6 through 19, and Leviticus 26 are about the same. Obedience to God brings in cultural advancement over time, and disobedience to God brings in cultural destruction over time. Dr. Gary North commented on this. This passage in Deuteronomy presents a biblical basis of progress in history. It establishes the concept of God's sanctions in history, both positive and negative. The passage teaches that in history, there will be both positive feedback and negative feedback. Any attempt to renounce this passage as no longer judicially binding in the New Covenant era is inescapably a denial of any biblical basis for God-honoring cultural progress in history. Gary North, Millennialism and Social Theory, Covenantal Progress Modern theologians like John Piper frequently attempt to dismiss Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 by arguing that it only applied to the nation of Israel, but not to the Gentiles. Cultural development, they believe, is ethically random, and therefore Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 can have nothing to do with it. But did this really apply only to the nation of Israel? The law was clear that, although at that point in time God's special revelation was being given to Israel alone, the same principle applied to other nations as well. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes, and all my judgments, and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein spew you not out. And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nations which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Leviticus 20, verse 22 through 23. Here God talks about judging Gentiles. These Gentiles were the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. It is important to remember that he had already promised to destroy the Amorites since the time of Abraham. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. God prophesied that the nation of Israel would be enslaved by the Egyptians. After that, the Egyptians would be judged, and Israel would be free from slavery. After setting them free, God would take them to the Promised Land, which is where Abraham lived when his prophecy happened. Part of the land already belonged to other nations. One of these nations was the Amorites. Therefore, Israel would have to defeat the Amorites in order to take over the land. So the Amorites would be judged in the same way Egypt would. God explained why he would judge them. For the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. 
Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. And then he told the same thing could happen to Israel, in case they behaved the same way. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes, and all my judgments, and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell therein, spew you not out. Leviticus 20, verse 22. The concept of spewing brings us back to what God had told Cain. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. Genesis 4, verse 11. Man's sin defiles the earth because mankind is covenantally responsible for dominion over the earth. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. Figuratively, the earth swallows sin, and after it has swallowed too much, it must spew. The spewing means God's judgment. It is God's judgment in time and on earth against nations that rebel against him. So, this makes it very clear that the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, would be judged by the same standards that Israel could also be judged. That means that God's law, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, were binding on the Gentiles too, and not only Israel. If it weren't binding on the Gentiles, how could God threaten Israel to judge them by the same standards he was judging the Gentiles? The Apostle Paul made it clear that the law is God's perfect standard of righteousness for all mankind, and therefore it brings judgment against all men, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world, not just Israel, may become guilty before God. Romans 3 verse 19 What this means is that the rise and fall of nations is not ethically random. The rise and fall of nations depend on how much these nations conform themselves to God's law. History is not random because God's providence exalts or punishes nations based on their obedience or transgressions of his law. If we want to know how close or how far a nation is from destruction, all we have to do is to find out how close or how far the people there have given themselves into rebellion. Rebellion against God produces destruction, not only eternal destruction in hell, but also historical destruction on earth and in time. Sodom and Gomorrah, who were not Israelites, were among the first examples of the Bible, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example. Jude 1 verse 7. This is the meaning of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Psalm 94 gets to the point of calling fools those who do not believe the principle of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are binding on the nations. Consider, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chasteth the nations, shall not he correct? Even he that teacheth man knowledge, Jehovah knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Jehovah, and teachest out of thy law. Psalm 94, 8-12 This is not a difficult principle to grasp, since it is clearly expressed in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The problem is that the modern world tends to be extremely individualistic, and, therefore, too many Christians read their Bibles with all these modern individualistic ideas in their mind. Both the prosperity preachers and most of their theological opponents like John Piper read their Bibles in this fashion, and that is why when they get to Deuteronomy 28, they are not able to see anything but individual promises. Prosperity preachers see them as promises to individual Christians, and, therefore, they teach their followers that every single Christian can have every single promise there. On the other hand, most of their opponents read Deuteronomy 28 in the same individualistic way, but they are unable to understand how these promises can be binding in the New Testament if the apostles, for instance, lived the way they did. That is why they need to come up with an explanation as to why Deuteronomy 28 has been annulled and why the Old Testament is practically useless. The fact is that Deuteronomy 28 does not contain promises to mere individuals, but to nations, cultures, and civilizations. Let's take a few examples that will demonstrate how that works. The sixth commandment is, Thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20, verse 13. The ninth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, Exodus 20, verse 16. At every moment of our daily lives, we depend on people obeying these two commandments, at least externally. 
If I go to the bakery to get some bread, I have no real means of finding out if the bread doesn't contain some deadly substance. But although I cannot be absolutely sure the baker has not poisoned the bread in order to kill me, I still buy his bread. To do that, I must trust the baker. I must believe him as he presents himself as someone who sells good food. But in principle, he could be lying, couldn't he? He could have deadly substances on his bread. Imagine that every bakery and every supermarket in the country was completely based on lies and cared not the least for their customers' lives. Could we trust anything we buy? Could we be sure that the food is not rotten or poisoned? What would happen to society? So, in order to eat, we depend on mutual trust. We depend on the Sixth and the Ninth Commandment. The more society loses respect for the Sixth and the Ninth Commandment, the more there will be suffering and tyranny. Last week, I hurt my leg badly, was under a lot of pain and had to see a doctor. As is not uncommon in many Brazilian public hospitals, I had to wait for four hours in line to see a doctor. It was supposed to be an emergency line, and most people waiting with me were under some kind of pain. When I got to the doctor's room, there were three doctors. One of them would get on Facebook between one patient and another to have a few laughs and seemed to be too lazy to work. Patients were waiting. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Proverbs 6, verse 6. What happens to a nation when this commandment is not honored? But what if the law-breaking was even more severe? I had to take a shot. I had to take medicine. I had to trust the doctors. What if the law-breaking was even more severe? What would happen to a country if the Sixth Commandment were completely disregarded by doctors? Deuteronomy 8, verse 6-19 through 19, and Leviticus 26 are and always have been true. Obedience to God's law brings in cultural advancement over time, and disobedience to God brings in destruction over time. God's providence is not ethically random. According to Psalm 94, it is foolish to think otherwise. The promise and threats of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 have not been annulled in any way, and neither have all other Old Testament prosperity promises that are simply the same principle being restated. The New Testament does not abolish such promises, but confirms them even more through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 Christ threatened Israel with God's historical covenantal sanctions in Matthew 23 verse 29 through 39. And Paul did the same in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 11. Contrary to modern pietism, the Apostle Paul argued that the principle behind Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 is still fully in force. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. What modern theologians like John Piper don't understand is that these promises and threats must be understood in the context of cultures and civilizations, not merely individuals. That is why it is possible for the real law-abiding saints to live in a way that they do not experience the material blessings stated in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. The reason is that they might live in law-hating cultures. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Matthew 5 verse 11 through 12. This text makes it perfectly clear that the existence of Christians who do not experience the material blessings stated in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 does not mean these promises have been annulled. Nobody will argue that they were not binding during the prophet's time, but the prophets were also persecuted just like many Christians today are, which is contrary to the promises of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. Why so? Because they lived in law-hating cultures. The promises and threats must be understood in the context of cultures and civilizations, not merely individuals. When a godly individual lives in an extremely law-hating culture, he will not experience most of the covenantal prosperity because they have been forsaken by the culture he is in. That's how it worked in the Old Testament, and that's how it works today. Contrary to modern theologians like John Piper, the great Protestant reformer John Knox understood this quite well. In 1553, he sent out a letter to Christians in London, Newcastle, and Berwick. It was a serious letter of warning. In view of the spreading apostasy in England, John Knox warned the British about the cultural consequences of law-breaking and the impact their actions 
would have on posterity. When I remember the fearful threatenings of God pronounced against realms and nations to whom the light of God's word has been offered and contemptuously refused by them, Leviticus 26, verse 14 through 39, Matthew 10, verse 14 through 15, as my heart unfeignedly mourns for your present estate, dearly beloved in our Savior Jesus Christ, so do the whole powers of body and soul tremble and shake for the plagues that are to come. But that God's true word has been offered to the realm of England, none can deny, except such as by the devil are held in bondage, God justly so punishing their proud disobedience. First Timothy 1 verse 9 And have neither eyes to see, nor understanding to discern good from bad, nor darkness from light. The end of which my admonition is, that even as you purpose and intend to avoid God's vengeance, both in this life and in the life to come, that so you avoid and flee, as well in body as in spirit, all fellowship and society with idolaters and their idolatry, and albeit that abominable idolaters triumph for a moment, yet the hour approaches when God's vengeance shall strike not only their souls, but even their vile carcasses shall be plagued, as he has threatened before. Their cities shall be burned, their land shall be laid waste, their enemies shall dwell in their strongholds, their wives and their daughters shall be defiled, their children shall fall by the edge of the sword. Mercy shall they find none, because they have refused the God of all mercy, when lovingly and long he called upon them. Leviticus 26, verse 14 through 19. Jeremiah 6, verse 11 through 12. Leviticus 26, verse 1 through 13. You would know the time, and what certainty I have thereof. To God I will appoint no time, but these and more plagues shall fall upon the realm of England, and that ere it be long, except repentance prevent. I am so sure as that I am that my God lives, but you would know the grounds of my certitude. God grant that hearing them you may understand and steadfastly believe the same. My assurances are not the marvels of Merlin, nor yet the dark sentences of profane prophecy, but one, the plain truth of God's word, two, the invincible justice of the everlasting God, and three, the ordinary course of his punishments and plagues from the beginning are my assurance and grounds. God's word threatens destruction to all the disobedient. His immutable justice must require the same. The ordinary punishments and plagues show examples, Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68, Jeremiah 5, verses 15 through 17, Amos 3, verse 2, 11 through 15, Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 29. What man then can cease to prophesy? The word of God plainly speaks that if a man shall hear the curses of God's law, and yet in his heart shall promise to himself felicity and good luck, thinking that he shall have peace, although he walks after the imaginations of his own will and heart. To such a man the Lord will not be merciful, but his wrath shall be kindled against him, and he shall destroy his name from under heaven. How the Lord threatens plague after plague, and ever the last to be sores, while finally he will consume realms and nations if they repent not. Read the 26th chapter of Leviticus, verses 14 through 39. Which chapter oft have I willed you to mark, and I yet do unfeignedly, and think not that it appertains to the Jews only. No, brethren, prophets are the interpreters of the law, and they make the plagues of God common to all offenders. The punishments ever begins at the household of God. First Peter 4, verse 17. Contrary to prosperity gospel preachers, John Knox didn't believe God's covenantal sanctions were about how lazy and greedy people could work magic, get their own BMW, and beautiful houses by the beach. And contrary to modern pietists, John Knox wasn't comfortably sitting in air-conditioned rooms writing about how the law had been annulled and therefore God had ceased to destroy wicked nations in order to build up a godly civilization. God's law, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, were, in the mind of the truly reformed, a blueprint for Christendom, Christ's kingdom, Christian civilization. True worship and obedience to God's law was not only about escaping eternal torment and hellfire, it was also about escaping God's judgment in history. God's kingdom was not only what we would see in heaven or after Christ's second coming. Christ's kingdom is what we must build now, on earth, and in time. God's law is God's blueprint for the kingdom, and through his historical sanctions, he destroys the kingdom's enemies and blesses the labor of those who have laid down their lives to uphold it. This audio version of 
covenantal prosperity and not pietism is the Bible's answer to the prosperity gospel, part one, by Frank Brito, has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Lucas Bell. Please visit www.christendomboard.com to read this article and many more. This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please go to christendomrestored.com to read other articles. Covenantal Prosperity, Not Pietism, is the Bible's answer to the Prosperity Gospel, Part 2, by Frank Brito, January 12, 2013. If God says that he will bring judgment against a nation that refuses to submit to him, it follows that we should be asking ourselves about what standard he uses to judge so that we may avoid it. Since John Piper doesn't believe God's historical covenantal sanctions applies to nations anymore, it follows he doesn't believe we should worry about these issues. He wrote, With the coming of Christ, there is no Christian political regime because Christ's kingdom is not of this world. John 18, verse 36. And we do not fight earthly battles with chariots and horses or bombs and bullets, but spiritual ones with the word and the spirit. John Piper's argument is based on a false interpretation of Christ's words to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, verse 36. One crucial issue must be responded to here. Do Christ's words mean that civil governments have no obligation to obey him? Do politicians owe no obedience to God in their political decisions? Are anti-Christian laws acceptable to God since they do not have to obey him? Did first century Jews not sin when they persecuted Christians, since it was a political decision and politics do not have to be in obedience to Christ? Was it a sin for the Roman Empire to persecute Christians for about 300 years? Was it a political sin? Does the U.S. government have the moral right to allow for the murder of over one million babies a year, since it is a political issue and Christ's kingdom is not of this world? Will God's wrath not fall upon us for all these dead babies in the same way it fell upon the Jews and the Roman Empire? If we confess that God does hate all these political sins and that he will bring wrath upon nations who do not repent for them, it follows that John Piper's interpretation of Christ's word is false. If there is no ideal of Christian political regime in which Christ's laws enforce, then it is all right to have a pagan political regime in which anti-Christian laws are enforced. Either civil governments must obey Christ, and therefore there is an ideal Christian political regime, or civil governments can do whatever they want, like killing random people in the streets. There is no other biblical alternative. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Matthew 12, verse 30. Dr. Gary North provided the correct interpretation to Christ's words. Here is a frequently misinterpreted passage. Pilate had asked Jesus, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? 18 verse 35. Christ was responding to Pilate's implication that he was sovereign over Christ because he was a representative of Rome, which in turn was sovereign over Israel. By implication, Christ was simply another political or religious troublemaker who had come before the seat of Roman power. Not so, answered Christ. He did not deny that he had a kingdom. On the contrary, he affirmed it. His response did not affirm Pilate's assertion of implicit authority over Christ. Christ's kingdom was not of this world. What did this mean? It meant that his kingdom did not originate in this world. The of denotes place of origin and or location of authority. Christ did not say that his kingdom is not in this world. He said that it was not of this world. In short, Christ asserted Pilate had no ultimate jurisdiction over him because Rome had temporary visible power over Israel. Gary North, 75 questions your instructors pray you won't ask. So, Christ's kingdom is not of this world because his authority comes from heaven, i.e. God, and not from earth, not from Israel or Rome. That does not mean he only has authority over what happens in heaven and no authority over what happens on earth. 
It is absolutely incredible that any serious theologian would interpret Christ's words in a way to limit his rule to heaven and strip him from having any authority on earth whatsoever. The simple fact that this line of interpretation has become so popular in our time is representative of how shallow, irrational, and stupid much of what passes for biblical exegesis has become. What passes for biblical exegesis is an open denial of Christ's sovereignty over the affairs of the earth. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, verse 18. That means that civil governments on earth have to obey his law, and therefore should be Christian political regime. About five centuries ago, when Protestant theologians were more biblical and logical, John Calvin refuted John Piper's conclusion in his four-volume work, Harmony of the Law. But it is questioned whether the law pertains to the kingdom of Christ, which is spiritual and distinct from all earthly dominion. And there are some men, not otherwise ill-disposed, to whom it appears that our condition under the gospel is different from that of the ancient people under the law. Not only because the kingdom of Christ is not of this world, but because Christ was unwilling that the beginnings of his kingdom should be aided by the Lord. But when human judges consecrate their work to the promotion of Christ's kingdom, I deny that on that account its nature is changed. For although it was Christ's will that his gospel should not be proclaimed by his disciples in opposition to the power of the whole world, and he exposed them armed with the word alone like sheep amongst wolves, he did not impose on himself an eternal law that he should never bring kings under his subjection, nor tame their violence, nor change them from being cruel persecutors into the patrons and guardians of his church. Magistrates at first exercised tyranny against the church, because the time had not yet come when they should kiss the Son of God, and laying aside their violence should become the nursing fathers of the church, which they had assailed according to Isaiah's prophecy that undoubtedly refers to the coming of Christ. Isaiah 49, verse 6 through 23. John Calvin, Harmony of the Law, Commentary on Deuteronomy 13, verse 5. He stated substantially the same in a small booklet he wrote called A Refutation of the Slytime Confession of the Anabaptists. But to take away all the scruple in this matter, we have a very evident and express probation. For where the prophets speak of the reign of Jesus Christ, it is said that kings shall come and worship him and do homage unto him. Isaiah 49. It is not said that they shall depose themselves from their estate to become Christian men, but rather, being constitute in royal dignity, they shall be subject to Jesus Christ as unto their sovereign Lord. And David, following this and exhorting them to do their duty, doth not command them to cast away their diadems or scepters, but only to kiss the Son. Psalm 2. That is to say, to do him homage, and to be subjects unto him, having governance of others. He speaketh there of the kingdom of our Saviour Jesus Christ, and he doth admonish all kings and superiors to be wise, and to take good heed unto themselves. What is this wisdom? What lesson doth he give them? To give over all? No, but to fear God, and to give honor unto his Son. Moreover, Isaiah prophesieth that the kings shall be as fathers, nurses unto the Christian church, and that the queen shall nurse them with their breasts. Isaiah 49. I pray you, how agreeeth this, that the king shall be protectors of the Christian church, and yet their estate cannot stand with Christianity? If the Lord give unto them so much place among his people, as he giveth unto the prophets, we have sufficient to prove our intention, seeing that he doth appoint unto them so honorable a place in the fellowship of his people, that he giveth them this honor, I say, as to ordain the protectors of his church. As John Calvin explained, the books of Psalms and Isaiah clearly prophesied that a time would come that political regimes would eventually submit to Jesus Christ. Psalms 2, verses 7 through 12, 57, verse 9, 67, verses 1 through 5, 72, verse 17, 86, verse 9, 102, verse 15, Isaiah 42, verse 1 and 6, 49, verses 6 through 7, 49, verse 23, 52, verses 13 through 15, Therefore, John Piper, to deny Christian political regimes, he must deny the books of Psalms and Isaiah. John Piper stated that we do not fight earthly battles with chariots and horses or bombs and bullets. 
But the Gospel of Matthew states that a centurion had more faith in God than anyone else in Israel. Matthew 8, verses 8 through 10. In the Gospel of Luke, we learn that when soldiers converted to God, John the Baptist did not require them to cease being soldiers, but just to be honest soldiers. Luke 3, verse 14. Therefore, there is nothing in itself immoral about fighting, earthly battles with chariots and horses or bombs and bullets. It may be immoral if someone is fighting for immoral reasons, something which should not be the case in a Christian political regime. The Apostle Paul wrote that the civil magistrates is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Romans 13 verse 4 Civil magistrates are God's ministers, which is prescriptive of Christian political regimes, to execute God's wrath through the sword. That includes not only drawing the sword against local offenders, murderers, kidnappers, rapers, adulterers, public blasphemers, etc. It also means drawing the sword against foreign invaders who attack the nation. That's the way it was in the Old Testament, and that's the way it is still now. So, if John Piper is not against policemen or armies, he cannot legitimately say that we do not fight earthly battles with chariots and horses or bombs and bullets. The reason John Piper denies the possibility of a Christian culture and civilization is that he believes there was a specific evangelistic reason for this kind of thing in the Old Testament, and that has now ceased. The pattern in the Old Testament is a come-see religion. The New Testament does not present a come-see religion, but a go-tell religion. He gives an example to clarify what that meant. One of the main differences between these two eras is that in the Old Testament, God glorified himself largely by blessing Israel so that the nations could see and know that the Lord is God. May the Lord maintain the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. 1 Kings 8 verse 59 through 60. Israel was not yet sent on a great commission to gather the nations. Rather, she was glorified so that the nations would see her greatness and come to her. So when Solomon built the temple of the Lord, it was spectacularly lavish with overlaid gold. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. 1 Kings 6, verse 20-22 And when he furnished it, the gold was again just as abundant. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold, for the doors of the innermost part of the house, 1 Kings 7, verse 48 through 50. It took Solomon seven years to build the house of the Lord. Then he took 13 years to build his own house. 1 Kings 6, 38 through 7, verse 1. It too was lavish with gold and costly stones. 1 Kings 7, and chapter 10. Then, when all was built, the point of this opulence is seen in 1 Kings 10, as the queen of Sheba, representing the Gentile nations, comes to see the glory of the house of God and of Solomon. When she saw it, there was no more breath in her. 1 Kings 10 verse 5 She said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you, and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king. 1 Kings 10 verse 9 With the coming of Christ, all of this changed. All of this supports the great change in mission. The New Testament does not present a come-see religion, but a go-tell religion. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Two crucial questions must be asked here. Would it be possible for God to say, Come see, if he did not first say, Go tell? And isn't come see just a logical consequence of a successful go tell? Initially, Israel was a population of slaves in Egypt. All the wealth belonged to Pharaoh. After that, they spent years walking around the desert. Nothing fantastic to see in the desert. During all the time they were in the desert, God didn't tell anyone to come see. There was no fantastic civilization to see there. What he did do is tell Moses to go tell. There would be no come see in Solomon's time if there hadn't been a go tell through Moses in the desert. Moses never ceased to preach the gospel in the desert, although there was no wealth or civilization to see. He simply told the people to believe and obey. It was only on the basis of national obedience that it became possible to come see the cultural fruits of obedience. Those who just focused on come see without any regard to obedience wanted to go back to Egypt and kept complaining about how it wouldn't be possible to build up a civilization just like modern Christians like to say. We find the same pattern when we get to the prophets. If anyone went to the land of Israel during the prophet Jeremiah's lifetime, what he may have found is this. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nation and princess among the provinces. How has she become tributary? Lamentations 1 verse 1. Before it got to this point, what God was saying was not, Come see. What he was saying was, Go and tell this people. Isaiah 6 verse 9. Therefore, John Piper is wrong in his assessment that, Go tell is an innovation of the New Testament. Go tell is and always has been the basis for come see. When nations are obedient to God's word, they receive the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, and that becomes a witness to other nations of the sovereignty of God's law. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 through 8. This was reaffirmed by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall not in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 19. But since John Piper is hostile to God's law, and therefore denies Christian culture and civilization, he must also blind himself to the obvious fact that the come see was explicitly taught by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, as much as it had been taught in the Old Testament. If come see was a concept restricted to the Old Testament age, then John Piper needs to explain why historically the pattern applies perfectly to the rise of Western civilization and, more specifically, to John Calvin's Geneva. I neither fear nor am ashamed to say is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the Apostle. In other places, I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion so sincerely reformed I have not yet seen in any other place. John Knox Geneva seems to me to be the wonderful miracle of the whole world. 
For so many from all countries come here, as it were, to a sanctuary. Is it not wonderful that Spaniards, Italians, Scots, Englishmen, Frenchmen, Germans, disagreeing in manners, speech, and apparel, should live so lovingly and friendly and dwell together? John Bale Following after the model of Geneva, the Reformed have historically given to the whole world everything good Western civilization has today, just like Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 through 8, and the Sermon of the Mount said would happen. Jean-Henri Merle de Vigne, the well-known Swiss historian, described it well. The Reformation of Calvin was addressed particularly to the people, among whom it raised up martyrs until the time came when it was to send forth the spiritual conquerors of the world. For three centuries it has been producing, in the social condition of the nations that have received it, transformations unknown to former times, and still, at this very day, and now perhaps more than ever, it imparts to the men who accept it a spirit of power which makes them chosen instruments fitted to propagate truth, morality, and civilization to the ends of the earth. Jean-Henri Merle de Vigne, The History of the Reformation in the Time of Calvin, Volume 1 The prosperity gospel, as proclaimed by false prophets such as Kenneth Hagin, Benny Hinn, and Mike Murdoch, has caused much ill to the modern church, especially for third-world countries. But pietism is not the biblical response. Prosperity gospel preachers play pick and choose with the Old Testament in order to justify their greed and manipulate people with false promises. But pietists hate Old Testament law except when it fits their false definition of love and therefore can give no consistent response as to how to adequately understand and apply the Old Testament. Heresies cannot be responded to with only a small portion of the Bible while one pretends the rest doesn't exist. The Bible says God sends out false prophets to test how much a nation is willing to abide by his law, Deuteronomy 13, verse 3, and also as punishment for having disregarded his law, 2 Kings 22, verses 21 through 23, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 11. The prosperity gospel is just part of God's historical covenantal wrath poured upon cultures for having forsaken his law. Those who do not understand this have no response to give. The only possible response is biblical, reformed teaching on God's law and how it relates to Christian civilization, not false theology that rejects 75% of the Bible as useless for ruling our lives and, therefore, contributes to God's historical covenantal wrath for having disregarded His law. This audio version of Covenantal Prosperity, Not Pietism, is the Bible's answer to the prosperity gospel, part two, by John Brito, has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Lucas Bell. Please visit www.christendomrestored.com to read this article and many more.